I want people out there to believe that they might just be a wee Scottish lassie, but they can do it. It is such an impenetrable business, but you can fight through and win the day. And it's taken a lot of heartache to get there. And I was a delicate little flower when I started, but now I'd say I'm a thistle. Can be beautiful, but a little bit prickly sometimes. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. My guest today is Leslie Patterson. Her story is so amazing. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do it justice, but I will try. Leslie was a world champion triathlete. She won the 2011, 2012, and 2018 Xterra Triathlon World Championships, as well as the 2012 and 2018 editions of the World Triathlon Cross Championships. On retiring as an elite sportswoman, she was asked, what's next? And she replied, I'm going to move halfway around the world from my home in Scotland, become a scriptwriter, and win an Oscar. Teaming up with former journalist Ian Stokel, they wrote a screenplay and bought the option for the 1928 German anti-war novel All Quiet on the Western Front. They pitched their idea to anyone who would listen, but no one was interested in a German-language film about World War I with no celebrity star in the cast. For 16 years, triathlon prize money was used to keep the dream alive and pay the yearly renewal fees for the option. But money was tight. Leslie sold her bikes, remortgaged her home, and the dream was about to become a nightmare when the option was up for renewal and there was no money to pay for it. Leslie entered into a triathlon, desperately needing the prize money. The day before the race, she fell off her bike and broke her shoulder. Undeterred, she strapped up and competed using only one arm. And guess what? She won. Not long after, Netflix came along and agreed to finance the project. In early 2023, the film, 16 years in the making, won seven BAFTAs and four Oscars. Her story is one of extraordinary perseverance and self-belief. I could not be more excited to have her on Tiger Therapy. Leslie, you are quite unique in that you've made it to the absolute top of two different industries, sport and film. Most of us are barely making one career work. What do you think it is about you that's made you so successful? Oh man, Pippa, I just have this unrelenting drive. You know, my husband says that it's exhausting to be around. So I try my best just to temper that now and again, but Yeah, I don't know where it comes from. It's just this fire in the belly to just keep going. I have so much passion to do so many things and it's both gotten me into trouble, but at the same time, it's helped me be successful. So you don't know where it came from? Um, You know, I mean, obviously it's going to be partly genetic, right? Mm. You know, my mum's 
incredibly hard worker and a big dreamer. Yeah. Uh, my dad is more of a strategic thinker. And so I think the combination of both. And then maybe it's just growing up in that Scottish household. I was the youngest of four kids. So you kind of have to fight for your place at the table. And that's fostered in you from a young age. Uh, to want to stand out and be different and be heard. So I think all of those things combine. And then there's just that natural DNA that you're born with that that it's just I mean honestly since the day I was born I was running around. (laughs) So curious what were you like as a child? Oh filled with energy just to be honest filled with energy and happiness like my mum always says I was just a joyful child you know just always happy always laughing always running around always playing always doing stuff yeah just a big smiler they used to call me the smiler. Oh, that's lovely. What a nice thing to be known for as a child. Okay, big question. Who is Paddy McGinty? Ah, you've done your research. (laughs) My husband and I wrote a book together called The Brave Athlete, Calm the F Down and Rise to the Occasion. And we talk a little bit about how part of how I achieved some success, certainly in sport, and it was by developing an alter ego. And what your alter ego allows you to do is kind of embody the traits of your ideal you, who you want to be, without having to necessarily go through all the therapy to try and fix yourself. So I created this alter ego called Paddy McGinty. And Paddy I've always had this thing where I've wanted to be an MMA fighter. Don't ask me why, (laughs) but uh, I'm filled with piss and vinegar, so maybe that's part of it. But yes, so I looked to a Conor McGregor type because what I lacked was this ability to not give a shit about what other people think. Uh, I grew up very worried that I was pleasing people, worried what the expectations on me, all of that. And it really weighed me down, right? So developing this alter ego allowed me to not only sort of throw those shackles off of me and sort of not give a fuck, so to speak, but also that sentiment of just you get up every time. You get knocked down, you get up. You get knocked down, you get up. So all of that just really helped me get on the start line and be able to sort of push through and create a persona for myself. And a lot of top athletes, top performers do it. Uh, Beyonce has one called Sasha Fierce, you know, so it's a pretty common thing. And I think we all do it to some degree in our lives, you know, whether it's the alter ego of the mother or the business person or any one of those things, you know, we kind of do it intuitively, I think, but you can take it to the next level. I think I sometimes do that when I'm podcasting. I'm almost, God, I'm trying to be Joe Rogan here. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be a BBC newsreader here. <laughs> it's not quite me at some points. Yeah, totally. We do. And, and and that can be either a good thing or a bad thing, right? Yeah. Maybe it's who we think we should be. Maybe it's, you know, what the industry tells us, any one of those things. But I think if it's driven by the heart of something, the why of something, then there's an authenticity to it as well. I think this is such a useful tool. I need one. I need a better one. So I, I just love the idea that, so Leslie worries about what people think, doubts herself, and I know you would get quite extreme nerves before competing. Oh, so yeah. Paddy does not. That's the key, right? Correct. Correct. And there's certain things, and I, I kind of learned this through acting. That was my first foray into film. Well, I mean, I studied my undergraduate and graduate in theatre and film, but I was into acting. And so quite often you'll, you know, the Stanislavski method is very much about, you know, having little triggers 
stimulated by your senses that help you get into a character. So it might be a small movement or a look or even a smell or anything like that. And so putting on my race uniform, for example, would do that. And I'd specifically, like I designed my race uniform to reflect that. But then in training, you have to practice it. It's not something that just comes up. You have to actually practice it. And we know that there's neurochemical changes that can occur in your body, certain hormones that feed into your system because of that. For example, like the Superman pose, it was Mm. researched on on that and it showed that it increased testosterone and various other hormones. So, you know, the way that I would stand with my shoulders back, I'd clench my fists, I had this death stare. And, you know, I practiced a lot on training and got better and better at it. The only thing with that is... You know, people would sometimes think I was a bitch or, (laughs) you know, if they didn't know the other side of me, certainly when you're in hour six of training, you're exhausted, you've got another day the next day, like Paddy is in full force to get you through the day. So if you come up to me and I'm training and it's Paddy, oof, you know, maybe I'm not so nice. (laughs) Do you think it's significant that Paddy is a man? Um, Do you know what's funny? I think it, it just came from this MMA thing and certainly when I've developed it, It was back in the day when there wasn't so many female MMA fighters. But I've grown up in very much a male-dominated arena. I mean, I started off playing rugby with all boys. Then I was in the bike club, which was all men. So I think a lot of my role models have been, or a lot of what I've modelled myself off of has been that. Mm. But not to be sort of derogatory of, that sort of female empowerment but it's more just I think it's to do with the confidence that male egotistical confidence that as a woman you lack right so it's like if you can have that nice duality going on then it's going to be helpful. Mm. You just made reference there to the psychology and the science behind some of this I know that this is something you've studied a fair bit could you tell us a bit more about how you've used this? Yeah, so I wouldn't say I've studied it, so I'm probably going to butcher it. I know my husband's (laughs) in the background probably giggling at it. Your husband's a performance psychologist, right? He is. So he was a professor in psychology at UCSD Medical School in San Diego State and all the rest of it. And what was really interesting was he grew up learning certainly sports psychology and other forms of psychology by rote, so looking at textbooks. And then when we got together and he peeked behind the curtain of the crazy elite athlete, I think it just readjusted how to apply it and what does it mean. And so we kind of worked together. I would come home and say, well, I'm experiencing this or I've tried this. And I would do a lot of things intuitively, maybe just being creative, being an actor, like a very self-aware, emotionally And he'd be like, well, that's really interesting because the science is this and the neuroscience and blah, blah, blah. And he would kind of dig into that aspect of it. And that's why we came up with this book, because it was like my practical experience meeting his, you know, uh, psychology background and we came up with these different strategies. One thing, Leslie, that I think is quite interesting about people who've been very successful in sports and then go on to do other things is that there are often a a lot of tools and lessons from sport that people say are invaluable in their next career, things like leadership, teamwork, stamina. How do you think your your sport background has played a role in your success now? Oh, massive, massive. Dealing with failure. It's a failure-based business. And having to run with that, overcome it, deal with it, walk hand in hand with it. And the more that you do that, you become both resilient and you uh, have a deep understanding that it's going to get you to the next level of progression. 
Mm. I don't even like to use the word success because the journey so often is that success. Yeah, so I dealt with failure from a very young age and had to wrestle with what did that mean and how could I learn from it. And we know that the brain changes, right? Neuroplastic, right? It actually physically changes when we deal with adversity. And nowhere are you going to deal with more adversity than sport on a minute-by-minute basis, literally. And not only that, you know, I dealt with chronic Lyme disease and injuries and a whole host of other things. So I think I'm just a very resilient person. Certainly in the film business, you need that because you're going to have so many no's, so much criticism. And to find the bright spark in that, to find the positivity or the positive aspect in any situation is only going to help you. God, that's so enviable. If I have a paper cut, I need to go and lie down. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, hey, listen, it's taken a lot of heartache to get there. And I was a delicate little flower uh, when I started, but now I'd say I'm a, I'm a thistle can be beautiful, but a little bit prickly sometimes. Thistle, yes. That's such a sort of Scottish uh, analogy. I love it. I love it. Okay, so the incredible film you're now known for, All Quiet on the Western Front, was originally a book of the same name. When did you first read the book? Yeah, so I read it in high school. And it's just, you know, it's a text that's known throughout the world, right? A lot of students read it, they analyse it, they do their English essays on it and all the rest of it. So I connected to it. Very early on, I think the world is so fascinating, World War One in itself. And certainly when you grow up in Scotland or indeed Europe, right, you're constantly around memorials mm. with thousands of names on them from World War One. And we had Poppy Day and all that kind of stuff. So the awareness is very much front and centre. And then the themes in the book, you know, the betrayal of a youthful generation by that sort of upper brass is something as a Scottish person, of course, you can relate to, right? The underdog fighting against the big enemy. Yeah, so that was when I first read it and then was, you know, into film and I was starting to write some with another partner, Ian. You know, we both read the book. There was a sale on at a local bookstore and, you know, we're in California. And we both were like, oh my gosh, this would make such a great film, you know, in terms of like updated film. And, uh, you know, we, we just started to inquire about the rights. You know, we just kind of were pretty ballsy. Mm-hmm. We got lucky. We made a pitch and they said yes, which is very unusual for two unknown writer producers to get a look in at something like this. I'm so sort of, I guess, touched by the impact the book had on you, clearly from quite a young age, if you, if you read it at school. And I've read quite a few books that I've put down and thought, oh, wow, that was extraordinary. But... 16 years it took you to get this made. What do you think it was about the story that just kept you going? Do you know, I think it was it was kind of our take. Well, you get excited when you're adapting anything. You get excited about what are you bringing to the table that is different. And, you know, often it takes a lot of research to figure that out. And researching World War One. I mean, I personally spent about a year just reading a lot of trench diaries, reading a lot around the subject matter, and I was so bowled over about how few people understand how World War One led to World War Two, and what did that mean? Nobody really, especially in America, right? World War One barely exists in their mind, and it was a real pivotal time in history, right? It was a mechanization of war. It changed the course of everything. 
And so I think when we found out about the last six hours of the war, the armistice being signed, and yet the war not finishing until six hours later, and this weird period of time, this six-hour period of time, where you know tens of thousands of men died, we thought, gosh, that just epitomises everything about this war. And what if we bring this? You know, so I think it's like this combination of the war itself being so important and so unrecognised, or at least unknown by the world at large, and then our take of it, and then visually. As a war, it was like this alien landscape. And of course, as a, as a film writer, you're thinking visually as well about the world. What is something unusual about this world that you're going to bring to the table that people haven't really seen before? And of course, they haven't. World War One at the time was not a war that was covered in cinema eh, very much. Yeah, so just all of those things, I think, just kept us going. And I know quite a few people told you you were wasting your time. Oh yeah, everybody, my family, <laughs> my friends, everybody. Because, you know, we invested, my husband and I, that I now write with and who wrote on, on the script as well, um, we invested personally, you know, about 200 grand of our own money across the years that we didn't have. At the beginning of it, he was a professor, you know, I mean, you don't earn very much. I was earning minimum wage in a bike shop. Mm. Um, and then I would start to use, as I did well as a triathlete, I started to use my race earnings. But all of it was a big risk, but at the same time, if you don't understand the business, and the business is very difficult to have the door open for you, very difficult as a writer, as a producer, to, to get any spec, what we call a spec script, an original piece picked up by anyone is virtually impossible. So to have a piece of IP, intellectual property like this, to set you apart, even, even although there was lost a, a lot of no's, it opened the door to many conversations. We met a lot of people along the way. We learn a lot. So it's like when you see a lot of film students that spend hundreds of thousands on a degree at a big university, a lot of people actually take that money sometimes and make their own film with it because that is its own school. So we kind of thought a little bit like that. While it was a risk, we were getting the rewards along the way and that's how we justified it. Do you think... It was belief in yourself or belief in the project or both? Both, definitely both. I don't know, I have this inherent confidence and the more success that you get, the more you, you get it, you know? And I'm like, oh, don't worry, we'll make it work. And you just, I don't know, I mean, my dad's a very uh, confident person. I don't know, he just kind of makes shit happen. It just is. It's just like, it, it'll be fine, we'll figure it out. And so I was brought up in that kind of household. Yeah, so I think I just always knew that it would work. I don't know. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you kept going and you didn't get defeated. At the BAFTAs, this glorious moment where everything you've worked so hard for has finally been validated. Your speech was cut. <laughs> Can you remember the moment? I do, but to be honest, like, again, I think it's what you choose to focus on is the life that you're going to experience, right? So it was such a, an amazing night. I don't even remember it. And the thing about it is, is when you go up to the stage, there's a countdown clock and you're given whatever it is, 90 seconds. And there's three of us, there's Ed, the director and co-writer, and then there's myself and Ian. And you know, at the end of the day, Ed was a visionary. So he was going to always speak first. And, you know, we knew that, you know, he used up all of the time, which is, which is fine, like, whatever. 
But, you know, he had used up the time and I didn't think we were going to speak. And then he turned to me and I'm like, oh, shit, now I have to say something. So by that point, the clock was already done. So that's kind of why they, they cut it off. But, you know, everyone loves a bit of drama. <laughs> well, so is this when so I, I found a speech on YouTube? Is this the one when you said, I'm just a wee Scottish lassie who wanted to tell a story that matters? Yeah. Short, short, but oh, it was a really like moving, moving line to say. W- one thing I thought when you said it, because I'm always now looking out for people's sort of little clues of self-doubt and stuff, when you're like, I'm just a wee Scottish lassie. I was trying to work out if that was diminishing yourself yeah. somehow. Do you know what it was? Is like I want people out there to believe that they might just be a wee Scottish lassie, but they can do it. So I don't see myself on a pedestal. So it's not that I doubt myself or I see myself smaller than. I want people to relate to me. That's the difference. Because it is such an impenetrable business, but you can fight through and win the day. And I want people to feel that way. I love it. Okay, Leslie, before we move on, one thing that I found quite funny about researching you, as as you're now part of two very different worlds, and I saw another interviewer point this out, so apologies because I'm not giving you a very original question here, but I, I thought it was so brilliant, is that if you Google you, you get lots of glamorous awards show photos and videos of you, you know, being glamorous, and then there is also a video called How Not to Shit Yourself. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, my God. Well, so well, this is referring to you needing the loo during a race. Probably, yeah, because I'm sort of known in the circles as, you know, they say in Scotland, you drop your kegs anywhere, which means you, you drop your drawers, right? So I'll go to the toilet anywhere. And I grew up, you know, I grew up in a big family, right, where we were in and out of the toilet. And like it was just a very sort of communal experience. You know, everyone needs to go to the toilet you know, there's no no graces about it. And I definitely have, you know, when you run and you run hard, it loosens your bowels, so to speak. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I've definitely been in races where it's been a decision, you know, shit myself and win or stop and go to the bathroom. So needless to say, I've won rather a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, the reason I thought that this was interesting to raise in a conversation about like, self-doubt and limiting beliefs is that, I mean, you clearly don't feel that, but there's a lot of shame to bodily functions. A lot of shame. Oh my God, there is. And I don't get it. Like, uh, But again, I, I grew up in, in a house where it was very embraced. Mm. Like, you know, there's an openness about everything, whether it was your body, nudity. Like, I mean, literally I'd be having a bath and my brother would walk in and out or my sister, we only had one bathroom. What are you going to do if you need a toilet? I don't know. So you grew up in that. And then, I, and then I was playing rugby and you would just get changed wherever. Yeah. So I just, again, I just grew up in that kind of environment where people are just open and not prudish, which is great, really, because it gives you, you don't have that fear at all around around stuff like that, really. I'm just sort of like, it is what it is, you know. Okay. For anyone, for anyone listening who's in any doubt, the correct decision is to poop your pants and win the race. Big time, big time. As long as you're wearing like not baggy shorts, that would suck. Yeah, good underwear is key. Okay, so my my segue from this is to ask you to share any more stories you can think about about limiting beliefs you've had, any times where self-doubt has got in the way. We've discussed Paddy and his role in that. Anything else that comes to mind? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I think I've, I've kind of like wrestle with this my whole life is if you stay true to your passion 
then it kind of like shines a light on where you should go and where you should be. And any time that something hasn't worked out or I'm not feeling it, it's because I'm not doing the right thing. And a perfect example of that was I was starting to become kind of a good triathlete. I was in a, a big team and it was a lot of pressure, a lot of sponsors and all the rest of it. And I was doing a format of triathlon that I was good at, but I didn't love. However, it got more publicity around that specific form of triathlon, like Ironman and half Ironman versus the off-road triathlon that I do. And everyone had convinced me to do this. And so the world championship was in Vegas, which is like an awful place visually. It's not very inspiring. I love the mountains and the outdoors. That was one. But, you know, I had put a lot of pressure on myself to do well in this race and everyone was touting me to get on the podium and this and that. Anyways, I had the most god-awful race. It was the worst experience ever. I literally, I call it the run of shame. I finished off in the run way back and where I should have been and every sponsor was watching, you know, like right there. I mean, it could, I mean, it just felt dreadful. And two weeks later, I was due to race uh, the World Championship uh, Xterra, which is off-road, right? And so I just kind of dug really deep into what mattered and what I loved. And I ended up going to that race and winning it. So I went from the lowest low to then winning my first world title because it really was about funneling in what's important and what you love and what you're driven by rather than what you think you should do. So that's been a huge lesson for me. Mm. And one thing about triathletes as well, I mean, it's such a long race if you have have a bad leg, if you have a bad swim, how do you not let that destroy your mindset in the cycle and then in the run? And the next one, absolutely. And moment, moment by moment, I mean, you go through all these like totally wild phases in every race. I mean, I just competed at the World Championship in Italy. wasn't going to go out there, but did anyway. You go through like a mini film. <laughs> in every race, you know, I thought I was going to have a shit swim. I had a great one, which then put me in contention. I had a great first lap of the bike, was catching a ton of people up. Then I went on to the second lap of the bike and I felt crap, lost a bunch of places. Then you have to reconcile with yourself and really fight back. Then I went on to the run. I was exhausted. I thought, oh my God, everybody knows me as a runner. I'm supposed to be really great. And then I just kind of built into it and used all the strategies that I've developed over the years and ended up fighting back and having a sprint finish to get fifth place, which, you know, I was really proud of. So it's like, yeah, you go through these ups and downs, but I think that I've learned a shit ton along the way about the most important thing in every single moment is effort and attitude, because that's the only thing that we can control. So if you focus on that, then you can be proud of any performance. Whereas the moment that you give that up because you succumb to everything else around you, then that's when you get pissed off with yourself. That's so well put. <laughs> there you go. To listeners, 100% effort and attitude. That's all you can ask yourself of. One thing I've read about you is that you do a lot of your best thinking on the bike. That's where your creative thinking comes in. It is, you know, and I think, well, there's a couple of reasons Simon can kind of attest to this and he taught me this, but there's a, a curious thing that happens when you're moving through space. Your eyes actually track from side to side and it, it, it kind of sends a signal to your amygdala, your fear center, to kind of calm you down. So I think that the, the motion of biking, so moving through space and somewhat quickly, calms things down so you can access that creativity. And then furthermore, it's a very rhythmic thing. You know, if you think about the pedal revolutions, you know, it's almost like hypnotic. 
so you can get into this meditative state and then of course certainly where I ride my bike it's beautiful mountains you know so there's a sense of achievement you're moving you're progressing as you climb up to the top of a mountain which automatically gives you some kind of dopamine surge which is motivational to then you know think and dream up things so and then you can listen to stuff i listen to books i listen to movies tv shows all of it yeah my absolute favorite thing to do is to put in my headphones listen to an audiobook or a podcast and go for a really long bike ride right so i think what my bike rides probably look quite different to yours my bike is called peggy and she's got a big wicker basket on the front hey go on peggy what color is peggy she's a lovely cream white color Oh, gosh, that sounds delightful. <laughs> very different to your uh, very fancy race bikes, but uh, yeah. yeah well, works. I don't know, man. A big, a big wicker basket to put on my food, that sounds actually quite nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, Leslie, looking forward for you, what's next? What are you thinking about on your bike rides? Yeah, so, oh my gosh, we have so many amazing projects we're developing at the moment. So, my husband and I have a company together that we've just started called Brave Art Entertainment. Yeah, so we're just, we're, we're doing a lot of different types of projects. So we both write our own scripts, produce them to, or bring on production partners if they're bigger ones, because we don't have quite, quite have the experience yet. We package our films. We also are hired to write other scripts with bigger producers too. So there's lots of different things that we're doing, which is overwhelming, exciting, amazing, a privilege. Um, some days are great. Other days are totally wank. But, you know. <laughs> Can I just say, after you, you, okay, I didn't get the brave art thing straight away. So I just nodded. And then I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. Right? I love it. So good. Yeah. It's good if something takes people a minute and then they're like, oh. It does. And they're like, oh, oh, that's really clever. Yeah. Well, it wasn't me that thought up. It was Simon. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wrap up question. I'm asking everyone the same thing at the end. Can you nominate someone to come on this podcast? It could be either someone with a really interesting rise to the top, an interesting growth story, and you think would have an interesting perspective on self-doubt and limiting beliefs. Someone you admire, could be someone you know, could be someone you don't know, and we'll try and get hold of them. Oh, good question on that one. Ultimately, I would put forward my husband. However, we're in the middle of a script deadline, so I'm not going to give up his time. However, we are working with an awesome director on our next project that we co-wrote a script with. His name is Carl Strathy, so he's an up-and-coming director, but just a lovely soul. And I think he would be a good person. Also as well, we're working, we've, we've just brought on a, a new gal. Actually, I think she would be really great to interview. Her name is Henrietta. And she's now working with us. And what's most important is she's totally changed her career. Uh, she was not happy doing, she was on that treadmill of life, which I think most listeners can probably relate to. And she took a very bold move. And as a consequence, now she's in this world that she always secretly wanted to be a part of, but never had the courage. And, you know, while it's a scary thing, I think it's safe to say she's having a great time. So I think those kind of stories are pretty cool. Those are great ideas. Leslie, thank you so much. I know you're having a crazy busy week and it was quite hard to fit this in. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. 
The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall. <laughs>